The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What does the future of work look like? I'll tell you what, if it looks the same, I want no part of it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm your host, Lori Rudiman. On today's show, my guest, Katie Augsburger, talks about redesigning work from the ground up. She's a former HR leader turned consultant who helps companies rethink leadership and employee development, diversity strategies, organizational design, change management, and all sorts of other boring people-related practices. But Katie is not boring. Her company takes a nod from design thinking, and she helps organizations rethink work-related stuff with a human-centered approach. Katie isn't some recently minted MBA graduate who thinks she knows something about work. She's a woman of color, a business executive, an entrepreneur, and as you'll hear in this episode, a mom. What is human-centric design? Does the future of work have genderless bathrooms? Are we smashing patriarchy and scaring off white people? Well, you'll find out. Stay tuned for an interesting conversation on Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's fix work together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. Lori Rudiman here, and I have a very special guest today. It's my friend, Katie Augsburger. Katie, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Lori, for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. We're here today to talk about the future of work, eh, sort of, but I have a question for you to kick things off. Are you ready? I'm ready. How do you fix work? Lori, we fish, fix work by smashing the patriarchy and decentering whiteness. And to put it more succinctly, we need to redesign workplaces so that we support all people. And our current work world is just not designed that way. Wow, there's a lot there. So you <laughs> smash patriarchy and decenter whiteness, and those are like two huge buckets of work. So absolutely, be- before we talk about what that is, why are you doing this? Why is this important? Sure. Well, let me first start by telling you a story about why this is important. Um, I was helping a design company in Portland, Oregon, look for new workspaces, and we did a building tour of all of this great space. And I was in this one building and they had, um, you know, the perfect architecture, the perfect look. And I went into the bathroom because I'm a human and (laughs) I guess, (laughs) (laughs) and I walked into the woman's restroom and there were all these urinals and I, you know, am pretty clumsy and forgetful on my best day. So I went out, checked to make sure I was in the right restroom and I was. And so I looked again and there was all, I was in the women's restroom and there was all these urinals. And so I later asked the building designers, like, is this, uh, is this purposeful? What is, tell me more about this. Yeah. And, because wait, wait, that sounds progressive to have urinals right? in a woman's bathroom. I live in North Carolina where we had the bathroom bill and mm-hmm. everybody's got to stay in their lane and pee in a specific kind of room and you can't mix it up. Right. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so my, my thought was like, 
wow, am I, am I just needing to check my privilege? What is happening? Like I, I went through the whole thought process. Right. And then I asked the building designer and he was like, oh, actually the women's restrooms are two floors below us. The, this, when this building was, was designed, it was designed so that the secretaries were on one floor and all the men filled up the other floors. And even though I had conceptually knew that this had happened in a lot of buildings and a lot of workplaces, it just blew my mind. And I had this moment where women, women were not designed to be in this workplace. And that was the first time I'd really thought about this whole idea of like what we are doing with the future of work. Why we keep trying to tell people to lean in, lean into these systems, but these systems were not designed for us. The buildings themselves were not designed for us. So how do we lean into a system that wasn't designed for us? And then I thought, maybe we just break the system. Maybe the system is wrong on its surface. We have to change. So you break systems. I absolutely <laughs> love that because I think the future of work really needs not only a reboot, but just to burn down the old way of doing things in order to build it back up again. This is like a theory that I have in my life. So instead of really trying to repair things, it's time to get rid of the old and rebuild the new. So you hit on two things at the very beginning of this episode, um, smashing the patriarchy and decentering whiteness. So tell me, how do you do that in the context of your current job today? Sure. And it's, it's hard because when people hear those words, especially white men, it feels like an attack. And really it's not about um, not creating a space for white men. It's making sure we create a space for all people. And so decentering whiteness just means that in the design of our workspace, we're not over valuing and over designing for white people. We're designing for all people. And by smashing the patriarchy, we're designing the workplaces for women and for men, and everybody benefits for that. Uh, have you heard of the curbside effect? No, tell me what that is. So the curbside effect, I had a, a good friend just told me about this, and it, another one of those mind-blowing <laughs> moments, where they did this study after um, the American with Disabilities Act, where they had cut the, the curbs so that wheelchairs could get through. And what they realized is that though it made sidewalks much more accessible for people in wheelchairs, it actually made life better for everybody. So moms with strollers could get through the downtown streets easier. Men pushing big carts of heavy equipment could get through easier. Business travelers with their suitcases could get through easier. Just the small change that made a huge impact for people with disabilities made a huge impact for everybody. And so the idea that if we recenter workplace so that women and women of color are in the center, that doesn't mean that we're not honoring and valuing our male or our white employees. It just means that we are redesigning it for the person who has the least access and that that gives everybody great access. You know, it's so well said the way you just put that. And it reminds me of Tarana Burke talking about social justice. I was able to see her at a conference a couple of weeks ago. And she said the way that she sees change happening in the world is to start by looking at who's 
the least among us and who's most disproportionately disaffected by systems and practices in place, and then go and fix it for that group and you end up fixing it for everybody. And it sounds Absolutely. like that's exactly what you're doing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your current role in your job that enables you to smash that patriarchy and decent <laughs> whiteness and really make work great for everybody? Absolutely. So a lot of what I do is co- companies come in with these different problems through these different doors where they, they have one problem they want to fix. They want to fix their onboarding. They want to fix their performance management. And I ask, who is this designed for? And usually the, the answer is our top talent. Like, well, paint the picture for me. What does top talent look like at your organization? And they usually point to one or two employees. Um, not always it's a male, not always it's a white person, but often the behaviors that that person exhibits are behaviors that are often found <laughs> in white people or men. And so I ask people, okay, let's take a moment to figure out who who do we want to capture in these programs? Who do we want to support? How do we want these programs to look better? Um, and really helping them map it out. And it's really about human-centered design. Like, let's put those employees in the center of this design, and then let's figure out what will work best for them. And once we do that, we come up with programs that are sometimes radically different. <laughs> um, but also are more impactful. I love the notion of human-centered design because this is what's really driving design from a consumer perspective these days. And I love the applicability at work. And so I wonder if you go in and really take a human-centered approach to the workforce, how do you know that you're really fixing work? Because you're dealing with emotions sometimes and subjectivity, right? So who tells you that you're being helpful? Is it the businesses? Is it the employees? How do you know when you're making a difference? Both. It's, um, I am pretty nerdy. So a lot of my um, information is very matrix. I do a lot of um, matrix driven. I do uh, metrics driven. It it works as well. No worries. (laughs) I'm just going to stop you right there and tell you that I want to leave all this in because for people out there who criticize podcasting, man, it is so hard to be in a vacuum of your own home to the internet and do something and sound credible and intelligent. So we love you. We know you're awesome and amazing and you're metrics driven. I am metrics driven. <laughs> yes, and I am working from home with a sick dog and sick kid. So if this isn't like the future of work, <laughs> I don't know what else is. <laughs> but um, I do a lot of um, surveys. I do a lot of focus groups. I ask a lot of questions. And so the best way to figure out if something's working is to ask. And so uh, I can give you an example of like how this actually works. So I had a client that was dealing with performance management and they had for all intents and purposes, a pretty shitty <laughs> performance oh, management program. Like your client, every other goddamn company out there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> performance and it, management. We talk to our workers twice a year exactly. and we write them a 4.2 and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. And like bless their hearts because it's like, it's a hard thing to get right. Wait, wait, so, it, wait, is it? <laughs> it is not. But <laughs> no, it's not. But I, you know, I'm try, I always try to be grace. Don't I try to be super. <laughs> it is, it is actually terrible. So they had the, the, the system everybody has, right. Where it's, um, have your manager solicit feedback from people and the manager distills that in some secret box and then, um, computes out who, what you are. Are you a five? Are you four? Are you 4.5? Um, 
it means nothing. It feels super gross to be in that meeting. Um, and so I just spent time with employees. I was like, what do you really want? Uh, what would this look like if you could design this for yourself? And I asked the leadership, what do you want this document to be? Because you know, as HR people, we usually want that document to be risk mitigation, right? We want to make sure that our ass is covered should this person do something wrong. And really, it never is. That document rarely helps us ever. Oh, that document <laughs> is a piece of garbage with unreliable <laughs> and invalid data and just yeah, subjective comments all over. It doesn't help anybody. And no. so I asked, what do we really, really want this document to do? What do we want this process to do? And everybody from leadership to employees said, I just want to grow. I want to know if I'm doing well. I want to be able to talk to my coworkers and find out what's working, what's not working. So I was like, why don't we do that? Why don't we? Yeah. Why don't instead? Okay, unless owners. Yeah. yeah. So instead, we re we smashed that whole system, and we said, "How about every employee pick three people, a person who they like, love, and feel like is their greatest advocate and their biggest mentor, a person that they've had kind of a." pinch with that year, somebody they've had a little disagreement, and then somebody that is in the position that they like to be in or is really like the North Star for their role. They'd really love to get their advice. And we had that person grab a beer or grab some coffee, company paid, to go meet with these people and ask them some questions. And they took that information themselves, distilled that down, and then reported to their manager, here's what I've learned, and here are the things I'm going to do based on that information. And the employee said this was the most meaningful and impactful feedback they've ever received because it was feedback they were asking for to people that they really wanted to get feedback from. God, I love that so much. <laughs> and you know, I think about all of the performance management conversations I've had in my entire life, and they've always been top down, if they've happened at all, mm -hmm. driven by corporate goals and objectives, as if that means anything to me in my daily right. job, and super uh, depersonalized, right? I mean, you're right, exactly. compliance driven, legal, legal-ish process made to cover a company's ass in case I sue them. You mm -hmm. know, what I heard from you sounds really cool and really interesting, but I could hear my friends back at Monsanto or Pfizer go, ah, oh, that's for tech startups. Yep. That's never going to work right. in my company. So what kinds of companies benefit from rethinking systems and what kinds of companies do you normally work with? Is it the tech startups on the West Coast, or is it mm -hmm. traditional consumer packaged goods, pharmaceuticals, sales organizations? Is this practical for all aspects of the workforce? Yeah, that's a great question because really we have this idea that this is only for millennials. This is only for you know <laughs> tech startups, right? <laughs> we, have, we we put this on a box and we we kind of poo poo it, right? It seems too fluffy. And I've worked with pharmaceuticals. I've worked with. Um, the banking industry, uh, tech startups, <laughs> uh, design agencies, uh, all different types of clients and really in all different ages, all different races. And really when we design for people's needs and what really impacts their lives, it does make a difference. And so I always tell clients, you always hire for skill set, right? You always skills and tech is what like the Technical skills is what we hire for, but we always fire for behavior. We always fire for soft skills. And that is what happens in organizations. Organizations focus on systems and technology and process 
but it is the soft skills in which we break down. And so when companies say, we can't do this, it's too difficult, we can't do this for it so that it feels simple. But that is where we make our break strategy is in the behaviors, not in the process. Amazing. Amazing. All right. I've got one question for you before we take a break. Are you ready? I'm ready. Is it easier for companies to talk about sex and gender or race? Sex and gender. <laughs> Wait, why, why is that? Do you have a theory about that? Um, yeah. Race is really difficult to talk about because we all have bias and um, it is, yeah. <laughs> you want to hear my theory? Yeah, I do. Wanna, yeah, you, you help me out, Lori. <laughs> yeah, I think it's easier to talk about sex because we all know someone of the opposite sex and we've been exposed to a lot yeah. of different um, pieces of the gender continuum. So we know sure. gay people, we know straight people. I've got, you know, polyamorous people in my family, believe it or not. You know, I got a crazy family, sure. right? I've seen it all. <laughs> so... I've seen some of that, whereas I might live in Indianapolis, Indiana, or Chicago, Illinois, yeah. or Paducah, Kentucky, and I've never met someone who's Latina. Yeah. Or I've no, never I, hung I, out with a Filipino, right? 100% agree. Yeah, I, um, I really agree with that. I think it is very hard sometimes to put yourself into other people's shoes, especially people that you have not met. If you've never been near somebody who is black or you, your, your understanding of black culture is what you hear through pop culture. It is, it can be very isolating and it can make you feel like it is something that is inaccessible to you when really it is like, this is so basic, but we are just people trying to figure the same shit out as everybody else. <laughs> but it is the hardest thing to talk about. Well, I agree. And in that way, I think it's like an uphill battle to decenter whiteness. Yeah. If whiteness is power at most companies, which it mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. and you're asking people to check their privilege, but they don't even have an insight into what the alternative looks like. Because I'm a woman in a heteronormative relationship, and I kind of get my husband's experience. Experience, right. Mm -hmm. I can kind of understand maleness a little bit more, but yeah. if I don't have any African-American friends or Latina friends yeah. or, you know, people who are Asian American or immigrants, it's real hard for me to understand what decentering whiteness even means. Like, what does yeah. that mean? When you introduce that concept to people are like, they confused. Do they, well, what yeah. the fuck is that? Because that exactly. I would imagine is. is a reaction. And it feels, I think for a lot of people, that it is an attack that we are saying that you don't your white experience doesn't matter and that's not the case the case is that we have built a system where white behavior white experience white traits are the traits that we have decided are good traits and that is what we've decided professional traits are and I can't even express to me how many times I've been told I'm not professional enough or, you know, I speak too loudly or I use my hands too much, which <laughs> I use my hands a lot. Um, and I'm being measured by a yardstick that I have no access to. This is a white yardstick I'm being measured to. And even though I consider myself very professional, my work has always been great. I've received a lot of compliments on, you know, what I bring to organizations it is difficult because I am not, I'm not performative at a, in a white way. Makes and sense. that's, sense. yeah. And that's what that, that concept is. It's just mm -hmm. changing what we consider great and good. 
Well, really interesting. Listen, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about who's getting work right. So we're going to turn this around a little bit and talk about some good things. And we'll ask, what surprises Katie about the current state of work? And we'll ask her to leave us with one message that can hopefully improve our day-to-day work environment. So sit tight, everybody, and we'll be right back with Let's Fix Work. Hey, are you ready to podcast like a pro? then you need a secret weapon, someone who can make it easy, where all you have to do is show up and be the host. At One Stone Creative, that's what we do. Everything. Yeah, everything. Imagine, every time you sit down to record, you know what your topic is. You want a script? We can do that too. Then you record it, drop it in a folder, and that's it. Our team will take it from there. Production, show notes, uploads, blog posts, social media assets, swipe copy, like I said everything. Book a call with the podcast strategist today. Just go to onestonecreative.net slash podcast. That's onestonecreative.net slash podcast. And we'll take it from there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Let's Fix Work, and I'm Lori Rudiman. Today, we're talking to Katie Augsberger about the future of work and really what's happening in your work environment. So Katie, I'd love to start the second half by asking you who's getting work right and how they're getting it right. Yeah, uh, that is a great question. And uh, there are there are companies all over this country that are nailing it. And I'd like to highlight just a couple that I have seen um, or worked with or had conversations with. One is Ruby Receptionists. And it is a company of about almost maybe even close to a thousand now. I'm, I'm not, they're not a client and I have not worked super closely with them, but I've seen them on the awards circuit, which is always very telling. Um, but they're women founded and run organization and they are a call center. And so when um, companies need a receptionist, they hire out this organization. And what, what astounded me is call centers are usually pretty soul-sucking work. <laughs> yeah, it's like the sweatshop really, of... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It can be really, really difficult work. It can be exhaustive work. And they pay competitively. They have really great benefits for uh, working families. They put a lot of pride in making sure that their employees are well cared for. And they have a really great ramp up for employees who... Um, would come from underserved communities that don't necessarily have access to these like uh, great office jobs. They have this great onboarding program that allows them to get enculturated and, and understand their processes and their ways of doing things. And I only highlight that organization to say that when we look at organizations from retail to the tech companies, you can make work meaningful and impactful in organizations that maybe the work itself doesn't feel impactful all the time. You can be in, in a retail space, you can be in, in a manufacturing space and still have your, your organization and your work be meaningful. So they do a great job. Uh, Airbnb does a, a lot of amazing work and, and human-centered design work. Well, I love your first example of uh, Ruby receptionist because one of the things I have seen is a correlation between companies that showcase their talent publicly to companies that have high engagement scores. And mm-hmm. Ruby receptionists have this amazing Instagram account. And I only know about them <laughs> because they are featured in all these digital awards and digital mm-hmm. design uh, showcases. And their Instagram account is truly 
people who work for that company. They are proud of their receptionists and it's a diverse group of women. So thank you for sharing that. And men too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A lot of rubies are men. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to me being totally (laughs) with my language. That's right. Well, wait, I love Airbnb too. And so tell me a little bit about Airbnb. Why do you like them? I they have really been leading the human-centered design um, movement for employees. So their workspaces are incredible and it breathes Airbnb throughout. So each of their workspaces has uh, a conference room that is designed by to look just like an actual Airbnb. Like they actually take the pictures of one Airbnb that like, for example, I was in the one that um, looked like Joshua tree, like a, uh, a bungalow. Oh. Joshua tree. <laughs> it was amazing. And, and so the employees could breathe Airbnb and breathe what it meant to be that organization at all times, but they also made an impactful, um, employee life cycle where the, the employee not only felt Airbnb throughout the life cycle, felt that they were connected with the organization, but had meaningful opportunity to influence the organization. And that is really important. It has to be two-way. And so I really look to these organizations that are soliciting feedback and making meaningful change because that is really the future of work is that I want to engage with my employer the way I engage with all sorts of other consumer experiences because that's really how we're changing. I love it. You know, it makes me think about how sometimes companies are really taking a role in our lives that used to be uh, owned by parental figures or government agencies or politicians. And I just heard a story the other day from the head of human resources at Express Scripts, which is based in St. Louis. And she was telling me that during the Ferguson riots, they found out that 70% of their call centers lived within two miles of where all the riots were happening in Ferguson. And to ignore that, to not talk about that, what was happening in their real lives would have been doing a disservice to these employees. So they started talking and the employees said things like, you know, you have a time and attendance policy that is so strict. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, when we get pulled over by police officers, that's not a 15 minute ordeal. That's yeah. an hour long ordeal. Or maybe my brother gets pulled over and I need to go assist him because he's been arrested because he has unpaid speeding tickets. Mm-hmm. So they started to see all of these different social issues start to come up. And the workers also said, how come flexible time is good for your professional workforce, mm-hmm. but not for your call center? And it was just a fascinating revolution that Express Scripts had. So I wonder if you're seeing some of that with your clients, the intersection between social issues and business issues. Absolutely. I Right now, there is a lot of conversation about um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and how do we make our workforce more equitable? And that is fantastic, because this is a conversation that has been waiting for centuries. <laughs> We've been waiting to have this conversation for a long time. Um, but yeah, having these moments to talk about this isn't really though enough. So people are like, I want, I want EDI training and I want to talk about the Me Too movement, but it is the baking those things into our HR processes where we're actually going to get traction and movement. So have the conversations, dig deep in them, but actually make sure that your performance reviews, your compensation, your career ladders are actually equitable because talking about it won't do anything if you're like to your point about the time management if your policies still prevent people from having access 
Absolutely. Well, I wonder uh, what surprises you about the current state of work? Like what makes you either puzzled or surprised in a good way? Um, the puzzled part is definitely that we are so resistant that the idea I've had so many conversations, um, particularly with leadership, particularly with older people who are almost disgusted and horrified by millennials. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not a millennial myself. And I know, yeah. <laughs> I know that they're different than me, but I also, wait, wait, wait. are they, or is that pseudoscience? Cause I had a guest um, on a couple of weeks ago by the name of Anya Kane and she's a reporter and she really mm-hmm. believes that the science is garbage around. Yeah. Here. Actually, thank you for challenging yeah, that. Yeah. I think, I think there is a lot of garbage. science. <laughs> I mean, there's life stages, right? Yeah. And there are things that we go through, but in general, what the hell is the difference between the baby boomers and Gen Xers? Well, yeah. it's, it's a lot of it is just fake. It's a lot of it's fake, but I do believe that there is a, they have an expectation of access to information that probably my generation, baby boomer generation didn't have. Yeah. I think that's because we we have so much information now. And there's this thought that like they are wrong and we are right. And what I keep saying is, well, that may be the case in your mind. <laughs> but they are they are the they are the future of work. Yeah. And they are. They are. And the there is benefit to both types of working, but we are not going to get better unless we look at what was working and what wasn't with with other styles and what's working and what's not working with this style. And so the resistance is surprising. Um, the resistance to more women in power, the resistance to more people of color in power, it, it is hard to share power. And I, I recognize that, but that is, that to me is the puzzling thing. It's like, it's happening. <laughs> Let's get, yeah, get with the fucking program. It's 2018. Yeah. yeah no, it's the, this wave is not gonna, is not gonna stop. We, the, people are still going to push for more equality. That will not change. So are you, wait, are you in the camp where you want to um, coach and advise individuals who currently hold power or held power until recently on how to accept that power is transitioning and we're sharing more? Or are you like me where you're like, eh, fuck these old people. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of how I feel. And even myself, when, you know, I see my, uh, my own grip on things changing and my own influence waning, I'm trying to remind myself that, you know, it's not a zero sum game. A lot of people can be influential. A lot of people can be powerful. A lot of people can speak about work and have opinions and be leaders. And it's not just one Papa bear who's in charge. Yeah, yeah. So where are I, you with people who are struggling? I'm, I'm less radical than you, Lori. I'm all a right. Little, little. <laughs> I, tend, I tend to go with this very compassion driven place where it is critical that we have people who are currently hold power to understand and to be part of that process. Some won't, some will not be part of this process. And I feel like that's kind of why we're in this whole political mess that we're in now, because it's people who are not willing to share power versus people who, who need more access to power. And if we can do it from a place of discussion and love and compassion and thoughtfulness, I think we're going to get to a better, more healing place. Some people won't. (laughs) And, and, and that doesn't mean you stop, but you do try. And I think that especially in our workplaces, there is, there is legacy and value in, in people who have been in those positions of power. And we want to, 
we want to know what you know, and we want to honor your experience. But also, if you're not going to be part of the solution, we're going to need you to get out of the way. (laughs) But be part of the solution. (laughs) Well, that's perfect. You know, Katie, if there's one message you can leave with our listeners about the future of work or even about their jobs, what is it? Lead with human-centered design. And I don't mean that in the big design picture, but in the small, just center humans, uh, make processes and procedures for humans. Don't make it for, um, for bureaucracy's sake, make it for human sake. That's beautiful. Katie, thank you so much. Why don't you tell us where we can find you on the internet? Sure. I am all over LinkedIn. So you're happy to look me up there and you can find me at futurework.design. Great. Katie, it was great to have you today. Thank you so much, Lori. I had so much fun. Hey, everybody. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Katie Augsburger. I swore more in this episode than previous episodes. I heard it. I'm trying hard to earn that E rating on iTunes. So despite my potty mouth, please go ahead and connect with Katie on LinkedIn, Twitter, and all over the internet. And connect with me at L. Rudiman and Let's Fix Work. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and review. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino and Megan Doherty do everything in their power to make me sound great, which is no easy feat. Check out onestonecreative.net for more information and tell them that I sent you. And thanks for listening this week and sharing your time with me. That's all for now. I'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no-holds-barred, honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? Download it for free at lorirudiman.com slash DIYHR.